Take your Bible and turn with me this evening to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We're going to break in at verse 6, read through to the end of the chapter. It's a big statement that Paul makes at the beginning of verse 6. Romans 7, verse 6. Let's hear the Lord's word. But now we are delivered from the law. That being dead, wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be under death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin, by the commandment, might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate... That do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh... 
the law of sin. And God will add his blessing to that reading from his word for his name's sake. Would you bow your head with me for a moment? Let's seek the Lord together. Let's, let's all pray. Father in heaven, it's in the name of Christ that we approach the throne once again before we begin to open up the scriptures. We acknowledge that only the Holy Ghost can really open up the mind and heart and open up the Word of God. We pray He will do that in a very great measure. And Thou will help Thy servant to preach Christ, to preach the gospel, to be true to the book, faithful to His calling, to preach as a dying man to dying men and dying women. Give us, Lord, tonight the sense of the nearness of God to us all, to feel the power of the Word of God acting mightily upon our souls and changing us into the image of Thy Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Verse 24 is the basis for what I want to deal with this evening. You've said it at one time or another in your life, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? In Romans 6.14, Paul makes a statement that is one of the most thrilling, the most comforting, and the most instructive gospel truths in all of Scripture. Yet it has become one of the most misinterpreted and misapplied texts of our day. In that verse in chapter 6, he says, For ye are not under the law, but under grace. You know that it has been greatly misinterpreted when a certain school of commentators have used this text to allege that Old Testament believers actually gained a righteous standing before God, gained acceptance with God by a legal obedience to the law of Moses, by fulfilling some divine requirement in various dispensations of their era. Setting that false interpretation aside for a moment, what is the common understanding of this text among many, many Christians in our land? The common understanding of this text is that the church is no longer under any obligation to obey the Ten Commandments. That was for the Jews of the Old Testament. The law of Moses was for Israel, and it is not for the church during this, quote, age of grace, unquote. That's the popular understanding when you hear someone say, Oh, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Don't cite to me the Ten Commandments. That's Jewish. We're in the church age. It doesn't apply to us. You will find that very sentiment in the notes of the Schofield Reference Bible. I'm not making it up. 
It's there for anyone to see. But a careful reading of this verse in Romans 6 in context will prove the fallacy of that interpretation. For the first five chapters of Romans, Paul has he's been declaring God's method of justifying the ungodly, of making those who are unrighteous righteous in his sight. Five chapters have been spent in the book of Romans dealing with that. He has been answering the question of all questions, how can a fallen, unrighteous sinner find acceptance with an infinitely holy God who only will accept perfection and rejects anything that is imperfect? He must So how, 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 how can I, who am far from perfect, but very flawed and very fallen and, and very unrighteous, how can a sinner in a state like that actually find a God who accepts him as perfect? That's the great question of all ages. Amen. After showing that it cannot be through observance of the law of Moses, that it cannot be on the ground of personal obedience, he writes that we are, quote now, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified freely by his grace, not by the law, but by his grace. He says we are justified by faith, made righteous, declared righteous by God, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So it is through a, this personal faith in Christ that someone who is ungodly, born ungodly, born depraved, born an enemy of God, is actually declared by God to be righteous, and from that point on will always be treated as perfect, as righteous as Christ himself. The sinner who is justified before God believes, that's where faith comes in, he believes that the only obedience that can satisfy what God's law actually demands is the obedience that Christ rendered as the God-man. He believes. His faith lays hold of the fact and he embraces it that the only punishment that God will accept for the, for the sins that he has committed, satisfies the law's demand is the punishment that Christ endured on the cross of Calvary. Because he believes this from his heart, it's not just some facts swirling around in his head, because he has from the heart, from the heart, confessed Christ, from the heart he believes this gospel truth, God freely imputes to him the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God freely 
charges to his account. As it were, he, he takes the righteousness, the perfect obedience, the, the, the satisfaction of Christ's life and his death, and he transfers it all over to that sinner who has come to Christ and say, No one can save me but you. I can have no other righteousness that will make me pleasing to God but the one that you have earned by your perfect obedience to God's law. He realizes that this is all of grace. It's not of merit. It can't be earned. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my tears, not all my repentings. My acceptance is not based on how good a life I live, but on how good a life the Lord Jesus Christ lived, which was spotless, sinless, On that ground, God accepts me as righteous in his sight. But, salvation, it's not just something about the past. We have been saved. But the gospel also says we are being saved. Salvation does not stop with God simply Forgiving a person of their sins on the ground of Christ's death, it goes far beyond simply saving them from having to spend eternity in God's hell. God's saving grace goes on to deal with the sin that still remains in the, in the life and the lives of his justified people. And, and so Paul opens up chapter 6 with those well-known words. After the first five chapters, here's the world guilty before God, one, two, three. Here's God's only method of, of bringing sinners from that godless condition to a place where God accepts them as righteous. He opens up chapter six now with those well-known words, shall we, because it is all of grace and not of merit, personal merit, it's all of the goodness of God, the forgiveness of God founded on grace, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because, he had said at the end of chapter 5, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And so he's, he's, he's automatically dealing with the issue. Don't think for a moment that because where sin abounds, grace does much more abound, then therefore you can just go ahead and sin all you want. Because, you know, more sin, more grace. God forbid, he says, how shall we that are dead to sin live live any longer therein. So deep is this work of salvation that God carries on in the heart of a Christian that Paul could write these astounding words, sin shall not have dominion over you. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Why can't sin dominate the life of a child of God? And here's Paul's answer. Now here's the context of that misinterpreted statement. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. There's the critical context of that statement. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. Sin 
cannot have dominion over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. The obvious inference to be drawn from that text is that if they were under the law, sin would be dominating their lives. It would hold dominion over them if they were still under the law. And by under the law, he means under the condemnation of the law. You're still lost in your sin. If you're under the condemnation of God's law, you've never been regenerated. You've never been born again. You've never known what it is to have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you by faith. Surely in that case, surely in that state, being under the condemnation of the law, sin does have dominion over you. But you see, you see, Jesus Christ died to forgive the sin to send the sin away forever. And so we are no longer under, if we have been saved by free and sovereign grace, we are no longer under the condemnation of God's law. The law has said, the law has declared, the law of God, you are righteous. You are without sin. All the law sees is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been imputed to us and that covers all of our sins and hides them from the eyes of God, as it were. So much so, the old Puritan said, such is the hiding that God cannot find our sin. He cannot find them. It's not true for someone who's still under the law. That has nothing to do with about being under the law as uh, the Ten Commandments and whether or not you obey them. It's talking about being under the condemnation of the law. So if, if you're still under the law, if you're still under its condemnation, then yes, sin does have dominion over you. You're under its power. You're under its rule. You're under its tyranny. But that can never be true if someone has been saved. They're under the they're, they're, they're no longer under the dominion, the condemnation. Let me put it like this. They're no longer under the condemnation of the law, but they're living under the reign of grace. Sin is a tyrant. And Christ died to set us free from that tyranny. And we're free forever. If the Son of Man shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Amen. And we're free, hallelujah, forever from the tyranny of sin and Satan. Facts. Those are gospel facts, gospel truths that need desperately to be understood in this day of feel-good Christianity. Grounded in the truth of what it means to be justified freely by His grace. And live in light of that. One thing Satan would love to do is to bring you back under the tyranny of sin. 
He would love for you to be under the condemnation of God's law and seeks to convince you day in and day out. I have no doubt that you're condemned by God. That's why the guilt and the feeling of shame and defeat and going, am I saved? Am I lost? I don't know. I've got so much sin in my life. That's where Satan wants to bring you and keep you there. Keep you there. Oh, doesn't want you to forget about singing about it. He doesn't want you to believe. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Doesn't want you to believe that. He wants you to live in continual doubt as to whether or not you're even saved at all. I know him all too well. So, so you see that text has nothing to do at all with removing the obligations that Christians have to obeying the Ten Commandments. It's false teaching to say otherwise. It's erroneous. Being under the law means being under its condemnation. But not being under the law does not mean I'm no longer under obligation. No condemnation, but yes, obligation to the law. You see, the Bible never abrogates the law of God as his divine standard for how we should live our lives. It's his law that defines holiness. It's God's law that defines what pleases him and what displeases him, what he finds that brings pleasure to him and what he finds is disgusting to him. What brings joy, as the scriptures speak of the heart of God, to what grieves him. With the exception of Adam before the fall, the law of God has never been an instrument to gain acceptance with God. It's never been an instrument to gain eternal life. Let me make that clear. But it's always been, the law of the Lord has, has always been the very summary of all that God requires in the way of holiness of life. And it's right there that the Christian, you and me, faces a dilemma. Paul says that sin shall not have dominion over you, over me. He writes that the law is just and holy and good. All right? Sin won't have dominion. The law of God is just, holy, and good. But, 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 the great problem that you and I face in light of both of those truths is that there's still sin in our lives. 
And because we're Christians, we take it seriously. There are a lot of people who profess to be saved, but they just don't take sin in their lives seriously. They'll quote you off by heart, John 3.16, and basically live like the devil and live like the world. They're not serious about the law of God. They're not serious about holiness. But that's not true of someone whom Christ has redeemed. There is a dilemma here for them because they do take the law of the Lord seriously and they do take their sin seriously. They don't wink at it. So how do you deal with it? Romans 7 is particularly written to tell us how to deal with it. That's what I want to deal with for a little bit tonight. The Christian and his great dilemma. First thing I want you to see be crystal clear on is the Christian's real character. His real character. In, in verse 22, you'll find a very a good description of one of the great hallmarks of a Christian. Paul says, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. I delight. The, the, the Greek word that is at the root of this word delight has given to us in our English language the word hedonism, not hedon, H-E-D-O-N-I-S-M, hedonism. There's a word for you to add you all to your vocabulary, right? Hedonism means pleasure. Hedonism is that philosophy of life that makes pleasure man's best and greatest object of life. He lives for pleasure. That's where that Greek word delight, the root word there. Paul says, I, I take great, great pleasure in the law of God. It's so pleasing to me. But you see, there is this form of Christian hedonism. Christian, not the carnal kind, the Christian kind, that really, that really grips the heart of a child of God, that actually characterizes his life. The Christian is one who delights in the law of the Lord. He delights in the Ten Commandments. All ten of them. He doesn't just pick the ones that he thinks he can manage, okay? The ones he likes and doesn't. I, all of them. Now, now, here's one thing of which every professing Christian has to be sure. He must be sure that he delights in the law of God. He must be sure that he delights in it. It pleases him. 
He's not mad about it. He's not angry with God about the law. He doesn't fight it. It's not his enemy. It's a friend that he embraces. I mean, when you delight in someone, when they're pleasing to you, you don't try to stay away from them, do you? Oh, I'm glad to see you. When a man is truly born again by the Spirit of God, he has made, Paul says, a new creation in Christ Jesus. There's something radical. Remember that word this morning? Radical. Yes, it is uh, beyond normal. But the idea there's something in the very fundamental root of the man that changes. It's, it's not simply renovation, it is recreation. It's not trying to fix up that which is all in shambles and broken down. You can't fix up. You can't fix. You can't renovate fallen, corrupt human flesh. It will always be fallen, corrupt human flesh. The sin that dwells in us will always be that. What is needed is recreation. So we are made new creations in Christ Jesus. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. You can quote it off by heart. When you're born from above, there's a, a new nature, a new will. There's a new way of thinking. There are new loves, new interests that you never had before. They're in the very infant stage at first. Little beginnings, like the, the seed has been planted, but there's still there's life there. And as the, 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 the seed is there, as it grows, as we talk about the radical, the, the, the radical sweetness that we're looking for, we're being courteous, it starts small, but it begins to spread to the whole life, so it happens in the child of God. Paul, Peter describes this aspect of God's salvation when he says that we have been made, First, Second Peter chapter 1, somewhere around verse 5, we have been made partakers of the divine nature. Now, we haven't become God. We have become those who share in because it is the nature of God that is within us because the Holy Ghost... The Spirit of Christ has come and taken up residence within all of those whom are born again from above. Christ liveth in me. That's what the hymn writer said. Christ lives in me. And he lives in you if you've been born again. It's, it's his nature. It's Jesus in us. And because this is... Sharing in the divine nature, it naturally loves the law of God. But what, what do I mean when I say that the new creation, it, it loves the law of God, it actually takes delight in 
It's pleasing to the Christian. Well, it means in the first place, a Christian doesn't have any desire to change the standards of God's law. He's quite content with the law. Whatever God says, here's what pleases me, 100%. Don't want you to change it. Don't want you to water it down. His own, his own conscience says that they are good and, and they're right. And, and, and you, you don't want God to change them one iota, one word, one syllable of the law to be altered in any way. <laughs> why, why would you if you delight in it? While we know that this law would have been our reason for being condemned to hell had it not been for Jesus Christ, we gladly confess that the law with Paul is holy and it's just and it's good. It reveals the Lord's mind on what is good and bad, and what is right and wrong. Holy, unholy behavior. And because we're new creations, we have the mind of Christ. Isn't that what Paul said in Second Corinthians chapter 2? We have the mind of Christ. And our mind, since we have the mind of Christ, our mind agrees with the mind of God. It's completely foreign to the nature of the new creation to set up a different set of standards for what constitutes holiness. I remember that, that young lady, very, we, we went through elementary school, junior high school, and high school together, and I was running with the crowd until the Lord brought me out of that mess, and I went to testify to her one day. I felt I needed to tell her what the Lord had done and face her with the kind of life that she was living, not in some kind of sanctimonious, self-righteous way, but just because I had a real pity for her. Wanted to see her and know what the Lord had done for me. And it wasn't hardly any time at all before she said to me quite bluntly, I set my own standards for what's right and wrong. I make up my own morality. But that doesn't mark the Christian. The Christian, you see, and let me put this in, uh, in its proper framework. As, as, as we go on through this, we're going to see that every Christian's at a different level, and it's it's more fully understood and uh, experienced as growth takes place in the Christian's life, okay? 
But still, we're talking about the, the nutshell. The nub of the matter is there. The, the root of the matter is there. And so it grieves the Christian. It grieves him to see those who profess to be Christians want to change the standards. They want to pick and choose what laws they want to obey. You can understand that if you delight, if you say the law is holy, just, and good, and you delight in all the law of God, why it would grieve you when others who say that they love the Lord actually want to change those standards and water down those standards and say, well, those standards don't apply to us. To see the law of God made void, trampled under man's feet as if it's trash. It's even more grievous to the Christian when he sees the church herself redefine holiness and bring the church into a greater conformity to the world than to Christ. That's a real problem when you love the law of the Lord. If you can honestly say with the sweet psalmist of Israel, Oh, how I love thy law. And with Paul, I delight in the law of God. You will hate any change in the standards of the law. It's inevitable. The greater your love for the Lord, the greater your love for His law, the greater your love for holiness, the deeper will be your opposition to anyone and anything that seeks to water down, to take away, to alter what God says, here's what pleases me, and here's what displeases me. There's something far more important to you than people's feelings. And that's the will of God. That's what delights Him. Why do I say that? Well, let me ask you this. What is the greatest commandment of all? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind. That's the fulfilling of the law. Because the Christian loves the Lord, he loves the Lord's law, he, he, he loves the Lord's will, and obedience to the law is the declaration, it's the manifestation that he loves the Lord. You, you know what Jesus said, if you love me, then you keep my commandments. So he has no desire to change the standards. That's what it means. I'm talking about the Christian character, what he is fundamentally. He doesn't want to see the law of the Lord changed. 
But secondly, the Christian has no desire not only to not see the standard of God's law change, but he has no desire to compromise the spirituality of God's law. doesn't want the spirituality of it compromised. It's the law sinner, you see, who only looks at the, the external aspect of God's law. The Pharisees did that. They looked at the external aspect of the law. And it made them think, and it still makes men think today who only look at the external side of the law. It makes them think that because they haven't actually bowed down to an idol of wood or stone or metal, that they have kept the law of God, says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Okay, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. That law, check it off. I've kept it. I'm not guilty of idolatry. Oh, the Lord Jesus Christ, you recall, with that rich young ruler who came to him and said, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, here's what you do. He gets law, 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 law. Well, all these things I've kept from my youth. Well, one thing you lack. Sell all you have, give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. All he was doing was naming the idol of his life was his material possessions. It was covetousness, and it was idolatry. He had idols, all right. Although I am sure he never once bowed before Ashtaroth or any of the gods of his day. He just didn't see the spiritual nature of the law. It was all external. And so, they imagine that because they haven't murdered anyone, they've kept the commandment that says, Thou shalt not kill. That because they've gone to church on Sunday, they've kept the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You want to call it the Lord's Day? I, I have no bother with either one of them. Lord's Day, Sabbath day, it's all the same. Because the Christian Sabbath is that still a fulfilling of that commandment. Keep it holy. You don't, you don't eject the fourth commandment if you love all the law of God. But, but, but the Christian, now, the Christian who has been born again, the Christian who has the mind of Christ, and therefore he sees in, in varying degrees, he, he understands there's a spiritual side to the law of God that's not just taken up with the mechanics of the law. And he doesn't want that law to be compromised in his life or in someone else's life through a an ignorance of what the law actually is requiring, what God actually wants from it. I mean, holiness is eminently a spiritual matter. Amen. Oh, it, it looks like something, I grant you that. But it always proceeds from the heart, from something internal. So if, if hating someone is as good as murdering them in the eyes of God, then he condemns hatred as sin. So Jesus taught, because the Pharisees had it all wrong. 
The murder started with hatred in the heart. If simply looking upon a woman and lusting after her is in the eyes of God adultery, as Jesus taught, then the Christian denounces them both as sin and doesn't want it to be compromised and say, it's okay to look as long as you don't take. No. Not if you delight in the law of the Lord. If you delight in God's law, then you understand that the keeping of the Sabbath, the keeping of the Lord's Day, involves far more than going to church and hearing a sermon and not doing this or that thing on Sunday, but that it is a day primarily when the heart and the mind is to be taken up with Christ and His Word and worship. It's not... Uh, like a time clock where you check in. Okay, I'm now going to keep the day. I'm at church. I'm going to keep it. I go home and I do what I want to do. And I come back to church in the evening and I do all those Christian things. And then I go home and I do what I want to do. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, set apart from all the other days of the week. So the Christian doesn't want any kind of special dispensation given to him to excuse him from any of the Lord's commandments. It's true. And you will fess up. That old fallen nature, which has not been eradicated, that nature may desire it, It will want to sin. That's what Paul is dealing with here in Romans 7. It will want it. Make no mistake about it. But the new man, this inner man, will say, I I don't want to be given any special concessions that would get me out of keeping the law of God. John Tetzel was famous for that in Reformation, you know. You got special dispensations. You can sell them, you know. You want to give some money to the Church of Rome, and you'll get a handwritten dispensation. You can commit this sin and that sin and the other sin. That is so foreign. That is so foreign to the gospel. So foreign to the Word of God. But I tell you, folks... We're not that far away from that kind of mentality in this generation. I get a dispensation. It's from this kind of thinking that this whole notion of it's not new, but it's been around in some shape or form. There's nothing new under the sun, but we call it situational ethics has sprung where a man's 
uh, ethics are determined by the situation he finds himself in, so he can actually justify that which God does not justify. He can actually say such, such behavior is okay because the situation calls for it. And so uh, a man justifies stealing from his neighbor, from the store, from whatever, because he's poor and his kids need to eat. He justifies <laughs> he justifies panhandling and lying about his situation. Several weeks ago, there was, I was at West Columbia, where my wife has physical therapy. I go to Walmart there, and the fellow approached me and told me the story about he's in the hotel across the street, and his wife and kids and money, and need sickness and all that. <sighs> need some cash. Okay, sure. I reached my pocket, had five one dollars. Says I don't carry cash. I happen to have it this time. Gave him the five bucks. No problem. Do I think he was telling me the truth? No. The next week, I'm in the parking lot again at Walmart getting something, and the same guy comes. The store's a little bit different this time. I said, well, you, you told me this something like this last week. Oh, that I won't bother you this week, and it goes off. But you see, he justifies the lie because he has a financial need. Another man excuses his adultery on the notion that his wife is not very appealing anymore. Or even perhaps she's been unfaithful to me. So that legalizes me being unfaithful to her. It's justifying adultery. Another person lies on their income tax return with the excuse that the federal government's overtaxing us. They're just ripping us off. I'm going to rip them off. A man's greed for wealth is disguised under the pretense of how much it will help his family and his church and society. But the Bible says, thou shalt not covet. We're just living in a day where rationalizing sin has become very rampant. When people, Christians, are getting comfortable with sin. When it seems that almost any excuse... Not to be spiritual works. But the Lord's people need to come back and take another long, hard look at the truth before us. The Christian is one who delights in the law of God. The law of the Lord is not a burden to him. He doesn't view it as something that's confining and restricting his fun. As if the Ten Commandments were some kind of heavy chain that he would like to be free of. 
The Christian man, of course, who delights in the law of the Lord does not, does not for one moment think that the preaching of God's law and the urging of obedience to that law is some form of legalism. I used to become so weary of hearing that charge brought. against a ministry, against men who actually want to defend the law of the Lord as something to be delighted in. And they're automatically charged with being legalistic. But I'm beyond that now. It just, it goes with the territory. It's might as well expect it. But it sure does indicate there's been a loss of a delight in the law of the Lord. There may be things that I will not agree about with you and you will not agree about with me. But I tell you one thing we better be in agreement upon is this law of God is perfect. It is just and holy and good. And we should be delighting in it, not looking to change it and not looking to have it compromised in any way. We better agree on that. Finally, the Christian's great longing and labor is for conformity to the law. Doesn't want to change it, not interested in compromising its spiritual nature, but his great effort is the desire to be conformed to that law. If a man delights, you see, it makes sense, doesn't it? If a man delights in God's law, it's only natural that he wants to live by that law and seek to live by its standard. It's the, it's the hypocrite who says that he loves the law of the Lord, yet lives as if he has no regard or very little regard to the law of the Lord. That's hypocrisy. Pharisees were great at that. And they, and they knew the law inside and out like you and I cannot begin to imagine how well they knew the law. But it was all show. Just to impress people. As if they were spiritual, godly, and they were wicked to the core. The great desire of the Christian, if, if the Lord were to come to the child of God and say, like he did with Solomon, ask me one thing, whatever it is you want, and I'll give it to you. I, 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 I tend to think, maybe I'm wrong in this, but I tend to think if, if that was ever happened, that the child of God would say, give me holiness. Take away this sin. Just make me like Jesus completely. And indeed, that's what we're looking for. And that's what we're longing for, that we might see him and be like him, for we shall see him as he is. No more sinning. 
No more falling. No more unbelief. No more carnality. No more worldliness. No more anger. No more depression. No more uh, despair. No more sadness. All those things brought on because of sin. We're longing, (laughs) groaning for the day when we'll be made exactly like him in our experience. After all, it's, it's again that wonderful statement of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. We have been predestinated. Predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. If God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, surely that's what we want. Surely that's the desire of our heart. And that's why, that's why we become grieved with our sin. That's why we find ourselves saying with Paul, O wretched man that I am. Tell you folks something, you wouldn't have that feeling, you wouldn't have that experience if you didn't have that desire to be like Jesus Christ. Wouldn't even be there. No, the Christian wants to walk in conformity to God's law, and it won't matter what anyone else thinks or says about it. They may call you a legalist, a, 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 a do-gooder, a holy Joe, whatever the terms might be, but you'll go on in spite of it all. You'd rather see them understand what it is to delight in God's law, but if they don't, well... I'll leave you to God, but one thing I know, he's called me to holiness. And I struggle and war and battle. You and I don't always win the battles. Fact remains, we still want to be conformed to it. We don't throw it away. Okay, I'm done with that. Can't be done. Forget about it. (laughs) I'm walking away from it all. I've tried it so many times and it just doesn't work. Goodbye. Not a Christian. He delights in the law and wants to be conformed to that likeness of God's Son. That's our character. That's installment one. There's a whole lot more to see here in this struggle as we face our dilemma with our sin. May the Lord write his word on our hearts for his name's sake. Let's bow in prayer. Let's seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, for this time in thy word and the gospel, we thank thee. We thank thee that Christ Jesus lives within. The Holy Ghost is there, permanent, permanent resident of our souls, calling upon us to separate ourselves from all that is contrary to thy law. Lord, we do face that dilemma because we understand the struggle of Paul. It's our struggle. We've been assured that the law, we're not, it's not going to condemn us. We've been assured that we're under the reign of grace. We've been assured that there is deliverance. So, Lord, lead us along, we pray. 
and give to us the grace just to walk with thee one day at a time, moment by moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.